And now, if you can, turn to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1,857. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Thus ends our reading of God's unchanging word. May all who hear it find faith in the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. There is a myth being spread out there, a story of a perfect church, one that had never been sullied with false teaching or with wrong practices, a church where, where the people worshipped out of a genuine love for their God, a church that was growing both numerically and spiritually, a church living in complete unity. Do you know the name of this perfect church? It's called the early church. I hear it time and again, if only we could get back to the early church, then things would be so much better. The, the problem with such thinking is it is a romanticized view of those first Christians. And just a small investigation into the New Testament should bust the myth that the early church was this epic, complete church. Bottom line is this. The perfect church does not exist. It didn't in the past, and it doesn't today. Only when Christ returns will we see such a thing. Today we are beginning a new series on, on the book of Titus. Titus is a, is a short letter that Paul wrote to his disciple. A disciple who at that time was overseeing the churches in Crete. Now the questions that we must answer before we dig into this letter are these. One, who was Titus? Two, who were the, the Cretans? And then three, what was happening in the church on Crete that drove Paul to write such a letter? So first, who is this man named Titus? Honestly, we know very little about him. He was a disciple of Paul, a man who, who traveled with him on his missionary journeys. 
He was a Gentile convert who most likely came to the faith due to Paul's preaching. We know that he was a trustworthy man, as his name comes up frequently in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. For in that letter, Paul refers to him as as a partner and a fellow worker in the gospel. And now, Paul was calling on this faithful follower once more to, to oversee the body of Christ on the island of Crete. Paul desired that Titus would bring about correction to both the structure and the teaching of those churches. Second question, who were the Cretans? By Titus's day, Crete had already had a long history. Its heyday was already in the past. Crete was a, a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. If, if you look at the map on the screen, you'll see that it's, it's just south of Greece. So if one were to sail from Greece to Egypt, Crete would have been a likely stopping point. Therefore, it became an important place, both economically and militarily as well. Crete is also known as the birthplace of Zeus. Legend has it that that Zeus was the son of Kronos. And as the story goes, Kronos, he, he feared that one of his sons would eventually overthrow him. So he never allowed his children to survive past their birth. He would swallow them immediately after they were born. Yeah, you. (laughs) However, Zeus's mother fooled Kronos by wrapping up a rock in swaddling claws and and handing that to her husband instead instead of her little baby. And so Kronos swallowed the rock didn't even think twice about it, thinking that his son would perish. All the while, Zeus remained hid, out, hid away from his father on the Isle of Crete. And that was where he was raised. Well, will this being the case, Zeus' worship was a big deal for these people. But it was also an obstacle for the Christian faith. Another hindrance would have been the, the Cretan culture. At that time, most considered Cretans to be greedy and dishonest people. And we'll see this come into play as we progress in our study. For for Paul even quotes a, a Cretan prophet who said this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's why we, even today, we use the word Cretan in kind of a negative connotation. Apparently, this this saying reflected well the people who lived on this island. So establishing a church there would have been no small feat. Now, most scholars think that Paul wrote this letter after his first imprisonment on Rome, perhaps between the years 62 and 65 AD. Now, such a setting, uh, that would have happened after everything that happened in the book of Acts. By that time, Paul would have been released from his imprisonment in Rome and would have begun preaching the gospel into new regions of the Roman Empire. Did Paul make a journey to Crete? From the text, we know that both he and Titus were there. 
for the letter itself, it says that Paul left Titus there to finish a task. Also, from this letter, we can tell that that the churches in Crete were very young. And that, that Paul had an apostolic charge to oversee these fledgling churches. A charge that he had delegated to Titus. Being that these Christians were so young, these churches were unstructured. They were, they were struggling to know what the, what the Christian life looked like. A life diametrically opposed to, to much of their culture. And to top things off, these churches were also facing issues of false teachers creeping into their midst, stirring up trouble. So Paul wanted to give to Titus a corrective for these problems. Thus, we have this letter. Today, we're going to take a close look at Paul's greeting. Now, it's it's worth noting that the, the greeting here is much longer than Paul's typical greeting. In fact, the only greeting of any of his letters that is longer comes from the book of Romans. And Romans is a long book. You see, usually Paul would just simply state his name, state his title, then address whom he's writing to, followed by a blessing. Yet in this letter, Paul inserts a lengthy sentence describing the purpose of his title. The question is, why would he do this? Does Titus not know the role of an apostle? Of course he does. Yet this letter was not to be read by Titus alone. No. Letters like this, even though they would be addressed to a certain individual or individuals, they were to be read to the whole of the church. Such a letter was not only to give instructions to Titus, but to give apostolic credence to the changes that Titus would be implementing. This was Paul's way of letting the the congregation know that Titus would be making some tough decisions, but the church was to listen to him, for he had apostolic backing. With all that being said, let's dive into the text. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now there is a lot going on in just this first verse. Here we see two titles that Paul dons for himself. Servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. The first title describes Paul's role in respect to God. It was a title of submission. The the, the Greek word used here is doulos, which technically means slave. Paul viewed himself in, in the lowest of lows when in relation to God. He was in bondage, under compulsion, committed to the commands of his master. Of course, his second title was in respect to the church, an apostle. It was a position for one whom Christ had delegated authority. 
Christ gave to his church the gift of apostles. And as a gift, the church benefits from them. We benefit from the apostles to this day. For even though there, there are no apostles around today, we have their writings. And their writings continue to instruct us. So in Paul, we see both sides of the coin. On, on the one hand, he is, he is a slave, submissive to his God. And on the other hand, he is a man with authority, able to instruct God's church. In Paul, we see the servant leader that Christ calls all his followers to become. Of course, Paul doesn't just state his titles, but he explains his responsibilities in fulfilling these roles. What was the, the purpose in Paul being this slave apostle? For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Here we see a few things. In some respect, Paul was responsible for the faith of those who called themselves Christians on the island of Crete. As their apostle, he was mandated to make sure that they were believing the right things. How can one man be responsible for another man's belief, you might ask? He's not. He's responsible for the belief within the church. Do you see the difference? Paul cannot control what a person does and does not believe, but what he can control is both the teaching and the practice within the church. So how does Paul develop the church's faith? By giving them the knowledge of the truth, which in turn leads to godliness. And as we move further along in this letter, this is exactly what Paul will address. You have to remember, Paul, he, he had been doing this for many years now. He had seen churches that have thrived and he had also seen churches that had fallen prey to the enemy's schemes. He had dealt with churches that had strayed from the gospel message, people that he had to rebuke sharply. He had witnessed others fall into licentiousness, congregations where he had had to enact church discipline. And then there were those who caused division, false teachers that, that wormed their way into the fold, creating disunity among the brothers. In other words, this, this wasn't Paul's first rodeo. He knew the dangers, but he also knew how to lay a strong foundation. And this is what he's trying to do in this letter, to strengthen the faith of the believers by giving them the knowledge of the truth, which eventually leads to godly living. But Paul continues further in verse 2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. 
still speaking of his role as a slave apostle, Paul expounds on, on the faith and knowledge that he is to build up within the church. These things, they, they rest on the foundation that is the hope of eternal life. This is, is the message that is the basis of Paul's ministry, the hope of the gospel, that Christ died for sinners and he rose from the dead three days later, that he comes to, to bring eternal life for his elect, those who repent of their sins and trust in him. That is the knowledge which will anchor a true Christian faith. Now the word hope that Paul uses here is not like the way we often use the word hope in modern English. For instance, I could say that I hope the Detroit Tigers win their baseball game today. In that sense, I am just stating what I want to happen without any assurance that it will happen. In fact, they probably won't. <laughs> Sorry to say, the team's kind of gone downhill. But, but you, you, do you understand? There's, there's nothing I'm securing my faith in, except maybe my knowledge of who's pitching that day and the statistical analysis of the opposing team and, and who, who, who's pitching for that team. But, but it, even if both teams are evenly matched... I mean, it's a crapshoot who's going to win the game, right? But the Christian hope stands on firmer ground. It's anchored in the promises of God. Promises made before the creation of the universe. Think about that for a moment. Before God spoke the universe into existence, he had already chosen you. He had confirmed your salvation with a promise. Paul is making an effort here to point out the fact that God does not lie. Again, this, this message was not so much for Titus, Titus's benefit, as it was for, for the Cretan church. Titus would not have needed such a reminder. Paul is making a distinction between the true and living God and those Greco-Roman gods of which they used to worship. Those gods were conniving in their ways, willing to trick people in order to get what they wanted. Not so the God of the Bible. His word is truth. His promises are secure. And the hope of the Christian is certain. And these promises are delivered at their appropriate time as well. Look at verse 3. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Paul now demonstrates how God sent this slave apostle to produce faith within his elect. At just the right time, he brought his promises to light through the preached 
word. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is how God forms his church. Faith comes by hearing the word preached. This is why Paul and Titus were sent to Crete, so that the saving message of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed, and that the elect would believe in the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In essence, in this semi-lengthy greeting of Paul's, he, he gave a summary of how God structures his church. First, God calls a person to proclaim the message of Christ. This, in turn, produces faith within his elect. They then grow in godliness by the truth of that message. In other words, in this greeting, we see both doctrine and practice. Doctrine in the message of the gospel. Practice in that God appoints faithful men to be his messengers. This is the bare bones structure of what makes up a church. And it, and it is from these points that Paul will continue to draw from as he instructs Titus and the believers in Crete as to how they can become a healthy and thriving church. My hope for this series is that we, as First Congregational Church, will take a step back for a moment that we will set aside any preconceived notions of what we think a church should be like, and that we would ask ourselves, how does God want to build his church here in Allegan? Are we, as, as a faith community, following the blueprint that God has set forth in his word, or have we gone astray? And if so, how can we correct ourselves? Not that we would be that mythical, perfect church. Rather, that we would be a church that is putting forth the effort to improve. Dear friends, the, the, the things that you will read about in this small little letter will challenge you. They will convict you. They will make you ask tough questions. Questions like, are you willing to give up what you know, what you are comfortable with, and what you are familiar with to follow God's way? Will you, as a, as a church, be willing to, to let go of your traditions and your niceties in order to lead a life of godliness? This is where Christ wants to take you. But in order to do so, you must grow in your faith. And to grow in your faith, 
You must first have the knowledge of the truth preached to you. That being said, let's finish off our passage for today. Verse 4. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We've reached the end of Paul's greeting, and he is addressing Titus, the one whom he calls a true son in the common faith. For years, this man had been loyal not only to Paul, but to the message of Christ. As Christians, it is our common faith that brings about unity. We don't gather together every Sunday because we look the same or because we have the same politics or root for the same football team. No. God forms us into a family because we believe in the same Jesus, the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. We have the same hope of eternal life. We have the same faith. The faith of Paul was the faith of Titus, which is the faith of every true believer. Paul then finishes off his greeting with this benediction. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's interesting to note that he calls Christ Jesus his Savior when earlier in an earlier verse he called God his Savior. He is equating Christ with God in this benediction. The very essence of our hope is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Grace to the sinner, forgiven by the, the shed blood of Jesus, our Savior. Peace to the, to the one who was once considered an enemy of God and yet is now restored into that right relationship because of the saving work of Christ. Grace and peace can only come to those who hold to that common faith. Those who have repented of their sins and believe that Jesus died for them. It is upon such a confession that Christ builds his church. Whether that church is in Crete or right here in Allegan, Michigan. It is, a, it is the gospel message that is for the faith of God's elect. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your guidance. You haven't left us to, to fend for ourselves, but you have given to us your apostles who, who instruct us in the faith. I pray that you would soften our hearts, help us to let go of any man-made traditions that we have so that we can see clearly the knowledge of the truth and that we might live godly lives. Thank you for your son who bled and died for this church and for your Holy Spirit who guides us as we read your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.